Hello, and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Mabel Romero, Assistant Professor of Law at Northern Illinois University College of Law. And today my guest is Jennifer L. Brinkley, who's an Assistant Professor of Legal Studies in the Department of Administration and Law at the University of West Florida, and she's a licensed attorney in Kentucky. Today we're going to be discussing her paper, The Failure of Amanda's Law in Kentucky, Creating Best Practices for Legislatures Passing Domestic Violence Statutes, and this was published last year in the Quinnipiac Law Journal. Um, so thank you for um, joining us this morning, and I'm looking forward to chatting with you about this. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited. So can you tell us, this paper starts off with a really kind of shocking and scary story. Um, the story about Amanda Ross, who Amanda's Law is named after. Could you just inform our listeners just what happened with her and um, how how what happened to her really you know, gave inspiration to the drafting of Amanda's Law? Sure. So um, this paper really talks about two primary individuals, one being Amanda Ross, and the other was um, Steve Nunn. And Steve Nunn um, has a very political history. He was the son of a former Kentucky governor, uh, Louis Nunn. He served as um, a state representative uh, for a very long time in the Kentucky House of Representatives. And um, at the time of this happening, he was serving in Frankfurt, which is the state capital of Kentucky, as de- Deputy Secretary of the Department of Health and Family Services. And this is an organization that basically is over things like um, uh, child abuse and neglect cases, domestic violence, uh, things of that nature, anything basically dealing with um Uh, Family Services. It's now called uh, the Cabinet for Health and Family Services. Um, But he and Amanda Ross, Amanda Ross was um, someone who uh, was working in Frankfurt and had political aspirations of her own. Uh, They began dating in 2007 and everything um, seemed great for a while. They even became engaged in 2008. Um, But then the relationship became violent. Um, And on February 17th, 2009, they had a physical altercation. And so in Kentucky, you can file an emergency protective order uh, to obtain emergency protection from um, an individual that has uh, committed an act of domestic violence. And that's what she did. She filed an emergency protective order. They had a hearing and the judge entered a domestic violence order against um, Steve Nunn. And um, so this order uh, had provisions like they could not have contact with each other. He could not possess a handgun. Um, And so he had fallout from that. He had to resign his position uh, with the uh, Department for Health and Family Services because uh, this domestic violence order was entered. He also had been charged criminally with um, uh, misdemeanor assault. He ended up pleading, um, uh, entering an Alford plea to that in August of 2009. And then in September of 2009, on September 11th, Miss Ross uh, was uh, walking to her car um, in the very early morning on her way to work when neighbors reported that they heard a scream and multiple gunshots. And she was shot to death outside of her home in Lexington. Um, and they found uh, Steve Nunn um, about 100 miles away. And this is where the story gets a little uh, 
odd. He was at the grave sites of his parents. Um, He had slit his wrists, but only superficially. And uh, when law enforcement approached, because it During their investigation, they discovered the domestic violence order, and so they started uh, a statewide search for him, and they found him at the cemetery. When they approached, um, he fired a gunshot and uh, at himself, um, but he missed, and so he was arrested and charged with uh, wanton endangerment. He was taken to the hospital, um, but like I said, the the wrist wounds were superficial, Um, and so... He was ultimately charged uh, with murder and violation of domestic violence order. Um, And about two years later, he entered a guilty plea. And the wanton endangerment charges were ultimately uh, dropped upon the entry of that guilty plea. And then the legislature um, in 2009 began uh, very rapidly trying to create domestic violence statutes. I, I think in a response because this basically had been one of their own uh, that had committed this, this again at the time it was alleged act. Um, And they wanted to look like they were um, taking it very seriously. And so they started drafting legislation um, titled Amanda's bill, which became Amanda's law. So Amanda's law, it, it, it looks like it amended at least then existing domestic violence statutes in a few big ways, but what your paper mentions is that the biggest change was the ability of courts to order domestic violence offenders um, to wear global positioning monitoring systems, right? Yes, that's right. So it made lots of changes. Um, uh, Probably one of the uh, best changes, I would say, is that um, courts could now uh, obtain um, basically a protective order history of people that were before. So Kentucky is a family court system. Now, not every county has family court, um, but those that do, that's where domestic violence cases land. And so the idea of family court in Kentucky is one family, one judge. And so, you know, whatever your family law issue is, that judge remains consistent. And so, um, um, In those cases, the court could now uh, request and review the respondent's criminal history and protective order history, which hadn't been done uh, before with that protective um, order history. And so within the very first year of the enactment of Amanda's Law, the AOC, which is the Administrative Office of the Courts in Kentucky, processed 25,843 background checks. So that was a great reform that came out of it. Um, The GPMS, the Global Position Monitoring um, System, uh, was certainly uh, had good intentions. Um, Its hope was that uh, if someone um, violated their domestic violence order, then the court could order them to wear this device, which is like a, a home incarceration monitoring device. Um, And so the, uh, survivor, the petitioner, uh, would get notifications if that person was within the um, no contact space. And so it was really great intentions. The problem was, um, well, was was several. One, the state provided no funding uh, for these devices. And so counties 
we're faced with this unfunded mandate of trying to uh, figure out um, how to pay for these devices. There's a daily fee for the devices, um, just like with home incarceration. And so, you know, if you have an indigent respondent um, in that domestic violence action, then the county is footing the bill for them as well. The county was footing the bill for paying for um, getting these devices in the first place. And so you had a lot of very unhappy um, counties in Kentucky, and there's 120 counties in Kentucky, uh, unhappy with the fact that the legislature provided them no um, money to fulfill this mandate from them. Um, Another issue is that it wasn't like if I'm a domestic violence um, victim or survivor and I file a petition that I could ask that judge, hey, I want them to wear this device right now. Um, It wasn't available until the court entered a domestic violence order. The respondent somehow violated that domestic violence order, then was charged criminally Uh, with a misdemeanor for a violation of that domestic violence order, then went through the criminal process and either entered a a plea of guilt or was adjudicated guilty in that case. And only then could the petitioner bring that back to the family court or the district court if they didn't have family court and ask for this global position monitoring um, system. And so the hoops that that survivors had to to go through um, made it nearly impossible um, or improbable, I should say, for them to actually use this law in the way that it was intended. So I'd like to talk about the history of domestic violence, not just in Kentucky, but also nationwide. And it looks like right now, Kentucky defines domestic violence and abuse as physical injury, serious physical injury, stalking, sexual abuse, strangulation, assault, or the infliction of fear of imminent physical injury, serious physical injury, sexual abuse, strangulation, or assault between family members or members of an unmarried couple. Now, the understanding of impermissible sorts of violence in the home did not used to be quite so broad, right? Right. And actually in Kentucky, um, it, it was just a few years ago that um, the domestic violence statutes were amended, I believe in 2016, um, to even include things like stalking and uh, strangulation. And strangulation is a, a huge risk factor um, for uh potential later of fatality. And so um, it wasn't until just very recently that the legislature brought in this definition that the domestic violence orders um, and EPOs, emergency protective orders in Kentucky, used to not even apply to um, uh, people who were dating. And so you either had to be married or you had to um, have a a child between the two of you. Um, It it wasn't applicable for those who were experiencing dating violence. So um, finally, the statute was amended very recently um, to include those members, as we know, that were um, faced with domestic violence as well and, and should have been protected all along. But domestic violence wasn't always a crime or even something that you know, you, you could take action against otherwise in the United States, right? The, your paper details that the first laws making domestic violence illegal were enacted by Puritans in 1641. Could you tell us a bit more about that? 
Yeah. So um, that was a really interesting uh, part of my research and, and um, was kind of going into, and the, and the paper just gives a very brief detail of this, um, but basically where did this idea of um, domestic violence becoming either a criminal offense or something we can um, deal with in civil court uh, where did that begin? And so, yeah, in 1641, uh, the Puritans basically were the first to make domestic violence um, illegal. And so the law there uh, was applicable to married women and basically said that, you know, husbands, you are um, not to uh, basically physically assault your wives <clears throat> unless she assaults you first. So there was kind of that, that, um, uh, self-defense provision built in, I guess, um, there in 1641. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah. And so as we go through, um, you know, women, we have this whole romantic paternalistic, um, uh, history where women were seen as the weaker sex and, uh, husbands were the heads of the household. They were, women were expected, um, to remain in their basically, uh, domestic sphere while the husbands went out into the workplace. And so women did not have a lot of rights. And, um, in terms of, uh, things like uh, being able to decide what to do with your own property. Um, it wasn't until the mid-1800s that states began passing what we call Married Women's Property Acts. Um, but in terms of domestic violence, I wanted to look at some cases um, about um, how courts were handling that. And I talk about one case in uh, my paper, uh, a, Missis a Mississippi case, uh, where uh, Judge Ellis, who was serving in Mississippi, uh, really became the first in the United States to create this precedent of lawful wife beating. So we had this case where um, the husband had been convicted of assault and battery on his wife. He appealed saying, look, I should have been exempt from prosecution because the victim's my wife and I have every right as the husband to correct her and use physical force to do so. And so the court didn't quite go that far, did not allow that um, wife exemption um, in terms of being prosecuted for assault and battery. But the judge was very hesitant. And he was talking about in this case, the case is Bradley versus State. It's an 1824 case out of Mississippi. Um, he basically talks a lot about how um, these family issues should be kept within the family. We should not be allowing um, these kinds of things, you know, men correcting their women to be brought into court because you are basically, um, you know, he says, casting a shade over the character of those who are unfortunately engaged in controversy. And so um, he goes on to say, to screen from public report, those who may be thus unhappily situated, let the husband be permitted to exercise the right of moderate chastisement. And so moderate physical force. Um, and basically goes on to say these things should not be prosecuted. 
1862, you get a similar type of um, decision in North Carolina, uh, where a wife was trying to divorce her husband. Now, at this time, we didn't have no-fault divorce in this country, so you had to show cruelty or adultery or something like that. And so she was saying, look, he's hit me with a horsewhip. He's hit me with a switch. He's left, left multiple marks on my body. And basically the court said, sorry, um, every man must govern his household. And if by reason of an unruly temper or an unbridled tongue, the wife persistently treats her husband with disrespect. Um, basically, if he allows that, then he allows himself to um, lose respect within the community. And so the law gives the husband power to use such a degree of force as is necessary to make the wife behave herself and know her place. So in that case, she was not permitted um, a divorce because basically she did not prove that the violence was um, uh, bad enough and that it wasn't caused by something that she did. Um, but what I found really interesting was that just a few years later, Alabama throws some shade at both Mississippi and North <laughs> yeah. Carolina because we have this we have this case very similar to the one I talked about where the husband um, was uh, charged with assault and battery on the, the wife. He was convicted. You know, wanted to say the same thing. Hey, you know, the court should have instructed the jury that um, this was my wife and I'm permitted to do so unless I'm excessively violent. And the trial court refused, stating that it was barbaric to allow this type of instruction, even if it was permitted in North Carolina or Mississippi. Oh, yeah. I just love that. That's a major shade <laughs> that they're throwing right there. Seriously. Right. Exactly. And from the Supreme Court of Alabama, um, you know, not not the most progressive of states um, historically, I suppose. And so um, I just really thought that that was um, uh, interesting that they were engaging in that kind of throwing of shade before that terminology was even uh, even <laughs> even known. So um, certainly an interesting. Uh, wow. So was case. Alabama the first state to take this sort of position like no hold on <laughs> right right yeah it's an 1871 case and um basically they they said and i put a quote in my paper because i thought it was really interesting that yeah you know they say she they're talking about the wife they're talking about how um you know she is entitled to the same protection of the law that the husband can invoke for himself. She is a citizen of the state and is entitled in person and in property to the fullest protection of its laws. Her sex does not degrade her below the rank of the highest in the Commonwealth. And, you know, this is 1871. So this is right after, you know, the, uh, the Reconstruction Amendments are, um, are, are developed and, um, at this time, though, the Equal Protection Clause does not apply to cases dealing, uh, you know, where um, sex is being treated differently. And so I just thought this was a really interesting um, uh, view by the Supreme Court of Alabama um, and certainly something important in the history of domestic violence, um, but also a little comical because of how they're, you know, dissing other states in their <laughs> in, in their opinion. So I'd like to shift our attention back to um, Kentucky specifically. Sure. So let's talk about some of the efforts that have been made in Kentucky to try to combat domestic violence since the early 80s. 
Yeah. So when I was researching this and, and, um, I found this study, uh, it was done in the late seventies in, uh, 1979. Um, and so there was a study of 1,793 married women, um, living with a male partner in Kentucky. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting because that's during, you know, this whole shift of um, when we're finally starting to recognize domestic violence. And so the study indicated that 10% of female partners experienced physical abuse at the hands of their spouse or their, or their male partner in the past 12 months. And then it also looks at this infrequent nature of reporting. So we know that domestic violence, at least we know now in 2020, that domestic violence is underreported. And so we even see this in 1979, that the uh, nature of the incidents being reported to police were called in and only 9% of the incidents reported. So we see this, this underreporting um, already being documented in the 1970s. Um, the first domestic violence shelter in Kentucky opened in Louisville in 1977. Um, so within the next three years, so up to 1980, uh, we see six shelters across the state open to serve women and children that are fleeing domestic violence. Today, or at least at the time of, of uh, writing this, there were 15 shelters across the state. So one would argue that's probably still not enough. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's certainly better than the one in 1977. Um, and in 1984, Kentucky, um, came along with other states and allowed civil protective orders, um, to be issued by domestic violence survivors. And so that's when we finally, um, see uh, the response legislatively in 1984, and it goes through just a myriad of amendments through the years um, of the steps that uh, survivors can take, um, and then all the way up to uh, very recently where we include dating violence, we include strangulation, we include stalking, um, which wasn't included before either. So it's this constant I guess it's a fluid um, uh, statutory response um, as we learn more about domestic violence and as we see trends in domestic violence. But um, it always seems to be a little bit um, behind, unfortunately. Um, but at least there is um, consistent effort to uh, make changes to help serve survivors. And so in this paper, I'm not trying to... to uh, dog Kentucky. I am, a, you know, I was born and raised in Kentucky. It's certainly um, very important to me. Um, but I do think it's important to look at where we've come from in terms of these statutes from 1984. Certainly good intentions with Amanda's Law, um, but it's just not, it's just not uh, working. Um I did an open re records request last summer um, to the AOC, um, the Kentucky Administrative Office of the Courts, and wanted to know um, that uh, I, basically what I wanted to know was how many times have these devices been ordered um, from January 1st of 2010 to when I did the open records request, which was July 17th of 2019. And um, 
through that nine-year process, there were only three cases documented with the AOC where a global position monitoring device had been entered. And so um, it's just not, it's, it's, it certainly had great intentions, um, but I think they need to go back and try to make the process to get this device um, a little less cumbersome um, because we know that uh, domestic violence survivors um, are traumatized when they go to court and have to deal with seeing uh, the respondent again and having to deal with criminal charges and then going back to family court or district court, wherever, um, whichever county they're in, it's just so difficult for them. And the idea that they can miss work and they can uh, just kind of drop everything to attend all of these hearings is just something that's, that doesn't make sense in reality. Um, So it would be great if uh, the process could be a little bit uh, friendlier uh, for survivors in order to obtain this type of protective device. So let's talk about how GPMS tools work and maybe some of the drawbacks to them otherwise. Yeah, so um, so I wanted to see, okay, uh, how is this working in other states that have this type of program? Um, and so I, I looked comparatively at what other jurisdictions were doing. And I, that could be a, 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 an entire paper of its own as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so... Um, and so, you know, some of the concerns that uh, GPMS has in other jurisdictions were what um, I, I briefly mentioned before is that there's technological issues with them. There's financial issues with them. Um, say you have an indigent respondent that cannot afford not only the cost, the initial cost of wearing the device, uh, but the daily fee for wearing the device, then um, that falls on the taxpayers to pay for that. That falls on the county um, to make sure that they have the funds available for that. Um, you've got the technological issues. You know, in a state like Kentucky, um, there's all sorts of, um, um, I guess you could say, technological deserts um, in terms of uh, good access to reliable and consistent technology. And so when we're looking at um, these kinds of devices that rely so heavily on um, internet access, on um, technology, then uh, that's something that needs to be addressed within the state of, um, you know, making sure that we have the, uh, the right type of technology that's consistent and reliable across the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Um, other issues were false alarms. Um, sometimes um, if the offender uh, didn't charge the device, a false alarm will be sent. And so um, the victim or survivor would be notified. Um, and uh, that would be an issue. Um, there was a study in Florida of GPMS devices that showed that actual violations accounted for 23% of the alarms. And so that leaves you with 77% um, being basically false alarms. So either the device didn't work, um, there was some sort of loss of a signal, um, and uh, that's that's not great numbers uh, to look at. Um, there was also one, uh, and I don't know if I put this in the paper or not. Oh, yes, I did. I'm, I'm looking right now. Um, 
that monitoring companies are always are not always vigilant in sending alerts for violations. So there was a Florida case in 2017 where a husband had been wearing this device and um, basically he went to her house in the middle of the night. The monitor alerted at 2.05 a.m. that he was within the area he was not supposed to be in. Um, but for some reason, uh, law enforcement didn't get a notification from the monitoring company until seven hours later. And so they responded to the home once they received that not- notification, and they found that she had been murdered and he had committed suicide after doing um, after doing so. And so, um, again, these devices aren't 100% foolproof. There's certainly um, another layer of protection you could um you could think of but again you don't want survivors to be lulled into this false sense of security that okay i've now got this device and it's going to be um everything's going to be perfect i'm going to be 100% safe that's just not not the um reality of the situation so how do i put this i've had the lovely opportunity to spend a lot of time in your home state of late and <laughs> you know it, it's a wonderful I, I, I've really been enjoying it, but something that has surprised me about it is learning that there are 120 counties, which is a shock to a Westerner like me. I'm from California, and there are 58 counties. Um, I have lived in Utah for a while, and these counties are huge. Um, so there are 120 counties. Does that create some difficulty in implementing Amanda's Law and a lot of these other domestic violence statutes with regard to decentralization? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, Kentucky is unique in that the the size of its landmass um, and how it's divided up in 120 counties is is just a really <laughs> uh, unique thing. Um, but certainly, I mean, if you go so in each of those counties, um, uh, sometimes there are. Um, uh, I, I, so you have county attorneys that handle misdemeanor offenses in the in those counties, right? And so um, now in some counties in Kentucky, you may have a couple counties grouped together where maybe the felony prosecutor, the commonwealth attorney um, is over a few different counties. Um, but so you've got um, all of these individuals with different mindsets, right, about domestic violence and about how um, survivors should uh should cooperate. Uh, we know that um, uh, many times survivors recant. Um, and so I was a, a prosecutor in um, uh, in uh, Kentucky, and I did misdemeanor offenses, so assault fourth offenses, which were these domestic violence assaults. And I can't tell you how many times um, I had uh, uncooperative, um, of course, I use the terminology victims at that time, uh, that just didn't want to participate. And it it was for a thousand different factors. Maybe he was, he or she uh, was the primary breadwinner. Uh, Maybe, um, uh, you know, I heard all the time about the feelings of love and um, how they didn't want to testify against this person. Um, child support issues, child custody issues. They didn't want to leave their, uh, they didn't want their child to be alone with the other person. I mean, there was just a, countless factors. And so we all, you know, in each county, you've got different ideas about how these kinds of cases should be 
um, should be prosecuted. But also, even within prosecutors' offices, you've got different prosecutors with different ideas. So I uh, worked with a male prosecutor who uh, we just basically agreed to disagree um, because I was fundamentally against what he would do with an uncorrupt cooperative victim. In his cases, if the victim no longer wanted to cooperate, he would sometimes file, um, would dismiss the assault and then file charges against the victim for, no, um, uh, basically, <laughs> yes, filing a false police report. And so I just, you know, I thought that was completely wrong um, because you have to understand the factors. You have to understand the cycles of domestic violence. And it is not uncommon for um, victim survivors to, uh, to recant. And so putting them in that position was um, something that I just disagreed with. So I, I say that because I think it shows you that even in, in one county, right, you can have very different ideas about how um, these cases should proceed. So multiply that by 120 and you've got, you've got just massive um, inconsistency um, with, with how um, these cases are treated both criminally and in the civil context. So in closing, what I wanted to do was ask you, what are some paths forward that the Commonwealth could look at or should look at? Yeah, so I think that, um, again, they need to make the process uh, less cumbersome. Um, they certainly need to, uh, and when I say they, I'm talking about the, the legislature, um, provide funding for counties. You know, if, if they are wanting, if they are truly sincere about these kinds of devices, they need to provide the, each county um, with the funding to be successful. And so to be able to um, have these devices and be able to have enough uh, funding um, to cover daily monitoring of these devices is certainly something that I think is, is an important step. But I also think making the process, um, looking at it from, okay, if I really want to um, impact survivors, what does it take for them to get this type of divorce? What kind of steps do they have to go through and how can I make that easier for them? I think that that would be um, a really interesting um, perspective for them to start from. Um, also, at the time of this, uh, at least when I wrote this, Kentucky did not have a statewide domestic violence uh, fatality review system. Um, so compiling data on uh, fatalities resulting from domestic violence is not the easiest thing in the world. And so now there are some jurisdictions that have these types of review teams, but it would be great to have a statewide uh, fatality review system so we can make sure that our statutes are truly addressing um, what needs to be in, in there in terms of protecting survivors, you know, so like a couple of years ago, they added stalking, they added strangulation, which are really important because again, like I said, strangulation is a huge uh, fatality risk factor. And so if we could have a statewide um, data collection, I think that would be um, something that could certainly inform our statutes. Um, and again, you know, I think 
improving um, the Commonwealth uh, in terms of its access to technology, especially now with, you know, pandemic times when we're all trying to access technology, either for school or work or or whatever. Um, It's certainly something that um, I think needs to be invested in. Um, especially if we're using things like um, cyber stalking are now included in our statutes, then um, uh, we need to be able to um, uh, be addressing things like technology use and internet access and things like that. Um, So those are just a few of the things that I think should be, um, you know, I hate to say, oh, throw money at the situation because that's not always an answer. But in this case, I do think counties should be provided uh, the financial resources they need in order to uh, really be able to say, okay, court, yes, if somebody wants one of these devices, we have them up and ready to go. You know, it's hard for a judge to say, yes, I'm going to order this GPMS device when they know that their county has no access to them. And so, um, uh, you know, Three examples of these devices being ordered in nine years is not a good track record um, in terms of uh, this legislation being successful. And so I think that, um, you know, those kinds of things, increasing access to technology, funding these mandates that they're putting upon counties and really looking at good data collection, I think would be um, a great place to start. Well, I think that this is a really important conversation to have and a really important paper. Thanks for taking the time to talk about it with me. Um, everyone listening, go ahead and download it um, from SSRN or find it at the Quinnipiac um, Law Review. Um, and it sounds like there are a lot of things to follow up on in here. So I'm looking forward to talking to you some more when you write more just future papers on this. This is exciting. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Catching on fire